It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I have Tim standing on the other side of the world from me. Well, actually, not literally. He's just Northern California today. But he's been writing drivers and storage utilities for Mac OS since 1986. And Tim, you look a lot younger than that. You're currently the... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> currently, you're the creator of SoftRaid for Mac OS X, and you are the VP of Software Development at Otherworld Computing. We met a few years ago, and I've been tracking you. Uh, you're doing some amazing things. So what I want to do today, Tim, for people who don't know what SoftRaid is, I'd like to explain that to them. And then I really want to spend some time for our listeners going under the hood and getting really geeky with this. So are you ready? I am, totally. <laughs> All right. So let's start out with telling people what is SoftRaid. There's a technology called RAID, which is stands as R-A-I-D, which stands for Redundant Array of Independent Disks. And the idea is that you can string together um, two or more disks and have them be one volume. So you can either have all your data duplicated, so each disk has all the data from the volume, and then if the disk disappears, then you still have one or more disks uh, sort of backing up with, in the, with the independent copies of that, all your files. So you can keep, still keep using that data. That's called mirroring because the data is literally mirrored on each disk. There's, a, there's an identical image of it. And it's also called RAID 1. Um, and there's also RAID 0 where you take all the data and you spread it out along, among all the disks in equal, equal parts. And then when you read, you can, you can read some, like you're reading a file, where you read some from the first disk and some from the second disk and some from the third disk. And just like when you're on the freeway, you can get many more cars down the freeway at 55 miles an hour than you can down a little country road with one car at a time going 55 miles an hour. The same way with, um, with RAID, with what's called striping, you can have much more data going into your computer at once than you can from a single disk drive. The problem with that, of course, is if one of those disk drives fails, you're going to say you have a four-drive stripe, so you've got your data spread across four disks. If one of those drives fails, um, you're going to lose one quarter of all your data, so you're going to end up with things like um, pictures where the top quarter is a band of like black, which is obviously not very useful. Mm -mm. It turns out that striping gives you the highest performance but it does have this vulnerability. So after the uh, engineers, software engineers in Berkeley who came up with this whole idea of RAID, after they came up with these first two uh, mechanisms, people started saying, okay, how can we give people speed and reliability? And it turns out there are several advanced RAID levels called RAID 4 and RAID 5 that allow you to lose one disk drive and still, uh, and through a little bit of math, recreate the data that was on that disk drive, but they also give you most of the advantages of this stripe, this faster RAID level. Soft RAID 5, which we've been shipping since 2014, supports RAID 5. There's also a level called RAID 6, where you can lose two disk drives, and that's uh, what we will be shipping in the first part of next year with Soft RAID version 6 that will support RAID 6 font. That's awesome. So what do you recommend to producers, uh, media producers, is the best version of RAID for them? What would you say? I actually like RAID 4 
um, for people using SSDs, there's a, a slightly esoteric reason for that. RAID 4 and RAID 5, the, the write performance is identical in SoftRAID because of the way it was implemented. I've always been in favor of choosing the simplest way to implement things. I find if I write simple software, there's fewer chances of there being a bug. So I try and create uh, mental models when I'm coding that simplify things that make it a uh, a model that I can think about in the physical world that represents what's going on in the code. Mm. So the RAID 4 and the RAID 5 code inside SoftRAID is literally, it's so close to identical for all practical purposes, it is identical. Um, what happens with RAID 4 is the parity data. So the, the way we recreate the data that's missing on a missing disk is it's sort of like a simple addition. Uh, it's called a parity calculation, but it's, it's basically addition without carrying anything. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine, you know, when you were first learning addition, you you learn how to do add a column and then carry the, the tens units over to the next column. Well, imagine you do your addition without doing that carry. And that's basically what a parity calculation is. And just like with math, with a simple um, addition, if you're missing one of the things on one side of one of the, the terms on one side of the equal sign, you can get it back by subtracting all those terms from the, the sum and you get the missing term. Well, that's basically what happens in a rate volume. And with rate four, um, all the parity data is on one particular drive. On rate five, it's spread across all the drives. And the reason this gets to be important is that when you're reading from a RAID 5 volume and the RAID 5 volume has all the disks working, which is what is the case 99.99% of the time, <laughs> you're reading the, the data and the parity information. And then as soon as it gets into the max memory, you're throwing out the parity information. So you're reading, you're incurring the overhead of reading this extra data that you're going to throw away. In many cases, this doesn't really make any difference, but as your drives get faster and faster, say you're using SSDs, you're using uh, blades inside some sort of uh, solid-state device, the speed of those blades gets to be so fast that extra data is actually going to slow you down. That extra parity information is going to slow you down. So what RAID 4 does is it has a dedicated parity disk. Hmm. And you can then read just the data and ignore the parity disk, and you see you know, a 20% speed improvement from reading from those disks. So again, the write performance between RAID 4 and RAID 5 is the same, but the, on, on solid-state media, on really fast volume, the read performance on RAID 4 is faster. Wow. Likewise with RAID 6, RAID 6 has two parity disks, which are two parity blocks that are spread among all the disks, and RAID 6 Plus has dedicated disks. So you can avoid reading those dedicated parity disks when you're doing a read and you get that extra speed boost. You know, we say as producers that you need two to three copies of everything. If we're working on RAIDs, yes. how, how, what do you recommend to people in order to protect their data. And I want to talk in a moment about how SoftRaid protects our data because it has saved my life on more than one occasion. But let's go back to just the simple question of, of uh, okay, as a media producer, how many copies do I should I make? And what's your recommendation for that? Well, I'm a really big fan of having a working copy on a RAID 4 or RAID 5 volume and having two backup copies, mm -hmm. one local mm -hmm. and one off-site. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when it comes off the camera and at points during the editing process, I would back up everything to another drive. Mm -hmm. A lot of people I've talked to, they have a Thunder Bay 4 set up as RAID 5 and they have a second one they use as their backup and they have... Um, 
some other device that is their offsite backup. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a volunteer firefighter for three years, and I saw a lot of people have really bad things happen to them when they least expect them, yeah. including fires. Yeah. And I saw several computers that looked like a beer can that had been at a campfire for mm-hmm. too long. And when I when I think about uh, backup, both for my personal computers and for the work of computers here at, at um, the the Macintosh software division of OWC, I always imagine that the building disappears. So I, I run a thought experiment and I say, the building disappears. Okay, nothing in that building I can touch ever again. How quickly can I get back up and running? Mm-hmm. Here at the at the building, we do backups of all source code to the server in Woodstock. We also have an image of, of every computer in the building that's a production computer. We have an off-site image we update every month. Um, it's a rotating off, uh, update so that there's two copies off, off-site and uh, the oldest one gets brought in every month and updated. Mm-hmm. So I can go back one month or I can go back two months. If there was ransomware, I could go back two months. So my, my pain point is I'm willing to lose 30 days of work for the convenience of only having to do it once a month. Mm-hmm. The source code gets updated for every single build goes goes up to a Woodstock. Mm-hmm. For for a media editor, a video editor, or film editor, I recommend the same sort of thing. If you're on a production and time is really tight, I would back up every night. I would say, okay, what do I need to make sure that I have backed up so that if something catastrophic happens, I'm okay. Right. Because awful things happen to people at the worst time. Oh, tell me about it. I've been to the offices of Drive Savers. <laughs> Uh, because, you know. Yes, we know. That's how we met, isn't it? <laughs> That's how we got to know each other very well <laughs> during that awful hack that I had. Yeah. But, you know, so there, there's ransomware. There's also fake ransomware going around right now, too. So, but that's a whole other conversation. But so you're you're thinking that maybe what we should do is m- actually mirror what we have locally, just mirror it, and then swap that out once once a week if you're in production i would say once a week yeah and then if you're not in production and you're in post i would say once a month yeah because you can you can recreate your work yeah you know using your final cut pro projects or your whatever nle you're using you can take those files mm-hmm. and using those files you can relink to the original media if you keep that safely somewhere Right. So I would say definitely mirror on a regular basis so that you have two copies locally, as you're saying, Mm -hmm. and then at least one or two in remote areas uh, to guarantee against theft, against hacking, against malware, against fires, against flood is another as another one. Water. So that's awesome. There are other ways of protecting your data that soft raid does on a moment-by-moment basis, I feel comfortable knowing that I have soft raid running on every computer that I have. Yes, exactly. There's soft raid running, and once in a while, I will get this little, and I thank you every time, Tim, I will get this little notice where soft raid, (laughs) soft raid will tell me you have a 65% chance that this particular drive will fail within 60 days or 30 days or whatever it is. And and I go, okay, thank you. So explain that. So I like to say that software protects your your data three ways. The way you're describing is the second way. The first way is that we, we know with electronics there is uh, and disk drives are no exception. There's a certain percentage of, of devices that fail just, you know, within the first like day or two of use. And then things are pretty good for pretty long time. And then, you know, when things get older, they start to fail. Right. So what we find with disk drives is 
in the first like 40 hours of use, there's a pretty high, higher than you'd expect daily rate. And then, you know, they're good for a year, two years, three years, and then they start failing more frequently. So what we want to do is make sure that those few drives that are going to fail early, mm-hmm. you don't actually start using. And we have a process built into Socrate called Socrate Certify, where we write out to every sector, we write a random pattern out to every sector on the disk, and then we read it back and we make sure it's identical. And we recommend you do three passes, do this three times. Awesome. If you think about it, the hard disk manufacturers, this takes you know, 40 hours or so per disk. Um, the hardware manufacturers, disk drive manufacturers can't afford to have, you know, rows and rows and rows of disk drives writing to every sector and reading back from every sector. It's much cheaper for them just to say, oh, well, we'll ship them all to customers. And if there's a problem, the customer will ship it back and they will have done our testing for us. Huh. Um, and we'll just ship them a your replacement drive. But it, it's cheaper for us than to have these drives consuming power, consuming warehouse space. So um, you're actually the tester for your disk drive when you first build by it. You just don't know Yeah, that. which is really frightening. It's very frightening it's really for frightening. us because yeah. what we absolutely, we're giving our entire life is on those disks when you're working right. in any business, not just production. So, okay, go ahead. So what we recommend is you certify your disks. Mm-hmm. It actually turns out that the speed of doing four disks is exactly the same with software. It is exactly the same as doing the one disk. You can set your disks up on Friday afternoon before you leave for the weekend, come back Monday morning, they're probably done, and you can start using them. And you know that all those disk drives are reliable mm-hmm. and they're going to give you good service. It's really interesting what we find. Every once in a while, there's a new type of disk drive that comes out, like the first helium drives, the first uh, shingle magnetic recording drives from Seagate. And we'll get customers who email us, uh, email marketing support and say, hey, I think Socrate Certify is really broken because I have eight drives and six of them failed Certify. And what we find out is that, no, it's not that. It's just that the manufacturers haven't quite figured out how to do this new technology. And they're using you to test it and figure out whether it's working reliably or not. (laughs) What I recommend to people is you don't buy the first generation of drives that come out. Mm -hmm. You wait six months. And by six months, they figured out the bugs, Mm -hmm. and then they're more reliable. I think 16 terabyte drives are coming out now. I would wait until, you know, Q2 of next year before I bought one. Really? And if you do buy... Yeah, I, if you do buy one, I would say definitely certify it before you use it. Mm-hmm. So that sort of gets rid of those drives that fail really early on. The second way that SoftGrade helps prevent you from losing data is we actually monitor the drives. And this is um, really interesting. My, I started my career as a biochemist, and I really love research, and I love looking at the way you can use data to predict future, future behavior and use it as an indicator and, and help you protect yourself. And Google in 2007 came out with a study where they looked at 100,000 disk drives that they had in Google server pods all over the country. And they analyzed the smart data. Smart is a technology that allows the drives to test themselves. And it also allows them to report back statistics, how many times have they been turned on, how many hours have they run, how many terabytes have they moved, how many errors have they had, what temperature are they? So Google looked at all 100,000 disk drives every 24 hours. And whenever a disk drive would disappear from one of their server pods, they would you know, email the technician wherever it was in the country who was responsible for that server pod and say, hey, what happened to that drive? Did you pull a server pod because the motherboard went or did the drive fail? Hmm. And if the drive failed, they looked back 
in this data, remember they're collecting it every 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So they look back and they see, is there one of these smart parameters that changed before that drive disappeared? And what they found, you know, you'd think, well, maybe they're too hot or maybe they're, you know, the ones that got jarred or whatever. What they found was there were only three indicators that were predictive of drive failure. Hmm. And they, they wrote this article in uh, 2007, and I read it in 2008, and I thought, oh, this would be wonderful. I can add this as a feature to SockGrade, and we'll use it to predict drive failure. And hmm. it's been part of SockGrade ever since 2010. Version 4 shipped. We changed the user interface in version 5 to make it more believable, because people would say, oh, why is it you think that uh, this my drive says it's going to fail, but why do you say that? We don't believe you. <laughs> and so w- what we did was we uncovered the actual reason. So before we would just say it's predicted to fail. Now we'll say it's got this many reallocated sectors. It's got this many uncorrectable errors. Mm-hmm. It's got this many unreliable sectors. Those are the three parameters we use. And by exposing this to the user, now the user can see, like we have a drive in-house that adds 100 reallocated sectors every hour of use. So it's got 20,000 reallocated sectors now, and if you're going to look at it and start using it, you would never put anything on there. Mm-hmm. But without SoftRate's ability to actually show what's happening on that drive, you would just like think it was normal and keep using it. Mm-hmm. This notification happens even when you're not running the software application, it's just a little agent that runs in the background all the time. It talks to the driver. It knows what's going on. It will put up this dialogue saying, hey, if this drive is going to fail, you should think about replacing it. It's also tied into our logging system. You can open up the software log and see exactly when these errors happen when we first noticed it. Uh, it's also tied into our email notification system. So you can set up software to send you an email. So you setting up a, a computer for your editor or your color grader, you can have it so that um, when either, if they're not that technical person, they're really creative, you can have it so that when there's a drive that's predicted to fail, you're the one who receives the email. The email notification system also allows you to set up, as we all know, sometimes your emails don't go through. So we allow you to set up two email outgoing email accounts. Mm-hmm. If the first one fails, it sends it through on the second one. Oh, that's wonderful. The last way that SoftRate protects data is the same way that all RAID systems do. It allows you to uh, recover even if a drive fails. So if a single drive fails with RAID 4 or RAID 5, you can still read your data. You can replace the drive and rebuild, and then you're back to protect protected state. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to tell you, one of the reasons I became so enamored of OWC, aside from the fact that I've been using their drives for many, many years, is that when SoftRate has predicted a potential fail, I have contacted customer service at OWC. I get a person on the line and they say, oh, send that disc back and we'll replace it right away. And I have a new disc, you know, within a couple of days sitting on my desk that I could I could put into the RAID system and and keep working. It's it's pretty awesome. Let's talk about Catalina. There was a bug that you discovered, mm-hmm. and uh, so you went from from version five point what to five point eight, I believe. Tell tell me about that. Yeah, we went, we we've been shipping version five point seven five since uh, March of last of this year, mm-hmm. seven months, and uh, we discovered there was a problem with Catalina. 
software. And it was actually a problem that was introduced. You know, we, we got access to Catalina right after the developers conference. We were constantly checking it, trying to make sure that there were no problems. And then very late in the beta process, Apple introduced a bug, which kept the software driver from getting installed correctly. So we reported to Apple. It didn't get the release of Catalina. So the day after Catalina got released, we released uh, version 5.8 of SoftRaid. We figured out there was a workaround where if you turn off integrity protection, system integrity protection is the facility in macOS that hardens your uh, startup volume so that it can't be tampered with by malware. Hmm. So you have to disable what I think is a very desirable feature yeah. in order to install the SoftRaid driver. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we had... A, we, we had a, a feature to put into Safari 5.8 where we would alert the user that they had to go and, and disable SIP, system integrity protection, um, in order to update the driver and then how to turn it back on. It sent them to a, a PDF that had the full description screenshot. And then um, to Apple's credit, uh, a week after Catalina shipped, you know how sometimes you go into software update and it says, there's a supplemental update and you really have no idea. It's not like you're going from 10.15 to 10.15.1. No, it's just this like amorphous a supplemental update. Well, it turns out the supplemental update they came out with a week ago, a week after, literally seven days after Catalina ship, fixed this problem. Mm-hmm. So we're, uh, you know, because we're a small, very nimble organization, being the Macintosh development group inside Otherworld Computing, we're now going to spin a new version of SoftRaid. It should be out in the next day or two that disables, that removes this this check and this protection that we put in for Catalina. Mm-hmm. And it adds support for a few more new OWC enclosures for and eight disk enclosures that are coming out soon. And uh, basically, uh, it makes the whole installation process on Catalina that much easier. Oh, that's wonderful. Because we're all upgrading now. You know, we're all upgrading to Catalina now. Yes. I was at the Mac Tech conference last week in Los Angeles and people were, you know, complaining about Catalina. And I got up and said, look, I'm really in favor of it. Apple is hardening the operating system there. You read about ransomware, you read about malware, you read about how much ransomware is costing people and how much these hacks are costing people. I think anything that Apple is doing, and I think they're doing a really good job to protect us against malware is worth supporting. And so even though it's harder for us to do our job, Um, I'm all in favor of the changes that Apple is making. I agree with you, Tim. I think you're right on with that. Talk to me about APFS and the support for APFS and encrypted APFS. Explain to people who don't know what it is, if you don't mind, and then talk about how you've integrated that into software. So APFS is sort of a mixed bag. Um, For people who want a really deep dive on APFS, I gave a talk Mm -hmm. in 2018 at the Max Sysadmin conference in Sweden Mm -hmm. that really goes into the nitty-gritty of how blocks are stored on the disk and the reason, the true reason why some things are, you know, how do snapshots work? I described on the on the low-level detail, how snapshots work. How does copy and write work? All these things I describe at a pretty low-level detail. So um, I'm actually a huge fan of APFS with one caveat. So I think APFS is really, it's a really thoroughly thought-out file system. It supports encryption, not as a shim, as we have with core storage and, and HFS, 
HMS uh, encryption is done as a separate driver. There's sort of multiple layers in there. It's really sort of a kludge. And I think it was done because the HFS code was so complicated that the storage group couldn't actually add encryption to it without breaking things. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they made the HFS volume sit on top of another layer, a core storage driver, which sat on top of the disk. So what APFS does is APFS has encryption as a fundamental inherent feature of the file system. And their encryption implementation, I think, is really good. The problem is that on, on rotating media disks, on hard disks, there's a feature of APFS that can cause massive fragmentation. Mm. And I have talked about this uh, both this year at the Maxis and Min Conference and last year at the Maxis and Min Conference. There's a really, from last year, 2018, there's a really good section of my talk about exactly what's going on. Basically, what happens is anytime you duplicate a file in the finder or take a time machine snapshot or use Carbon Copy Cloner to make a, a backup, you create a situation where anytime you write to a file, you're going to fragment the file. So the worst possible case is you've got a, you're running VMware or Parallels, you've got a virtual machine, you, st you run the virtual machine, and every single write to that virtual machine volume creates a fragment. What? And what I found was, yes, isn't that amazing? Yeah. The result is a volume like a, a four-drive uh, RAID volume that will normally do 500 megabytes a second mm -hmm. will slow down to about 60 megabytes a second. Um, and at first I thought, oh, this is only a function of really huge files. So I repeated the test with a 10 megabyte file. A 10 megabyte file, if you put a thousand non-contiguous writes into that 10 megabyte file, the read performance goes from 500 megabytes a second down to three megabytes a second. Three megabytes a second is the speed of one of those cheapo USB flash drives that you get handed at the conferences or the trade shows, which are just basically giveaway garbage. It's ridiculous. So this is bringing me back to the really, 80s. It is. It reminds me, remember when we used to have to defrag our, our disks all the time? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you, and you actually, so if you're using APFS and you're on rotating media, at this point, you do need to defrag your disk. There's just no way around it. And you're going to, you need to keep your eye out for it because you're going to run into this. I've been trying to get Apple to address this problem for three years. I finally um, got them to admit that it was a problem, but they basically said the only way it's going to change is if um, customers start complaining. So we have been stalling on, um, in, on adding APFS support to software for a couple years in the hopes that Apple would fix this because I don't want our customers to come to us and blame us mm -hmm. for why their RAID volumes are slow mm -hmm. when it's just the file system. We are going to go ahead and um, implement this in the hopes that people, when they have a problem, will contact Apple and give them the impetus. And hopefully a year from now, we'll actually have a good solution. It's a very simple solution. All they need to do is make it so that if you're on a uh, a rotating media disk, they don't enable this feature called copy on write, which is the root cause of what's happening. Um, just as, a, as an aside, it's not just RAID volumes that have this problem. If you have, and I talked to someone last week who's a, a tech for a lot of executives at Lionsgate and many of the other studios, and he has a customer who has a 5K iMac with a Fusion volume. Mm -hmm. He just upgraded it like six months ago to Mojave. 
And he has found that the performance is just awful. It's so slow. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason it's so slow is because the fusion volume is a mixture of an SSD and a hard disk. So anything that's sitting on the hard disk is going to be fragmented. And as soon as he starts writing to it, because he's probably got Time Machine turned on. And because of that, it's, you know, all these files that normally get read and written very quickly, you know, mail databases, spreadsheets, all these other things are now going to be massively fragmented and really, really slow. And he said his customer was ready to throw the computer out because it was so slow. So this is so, this is the one chink in the armor. Crazy. It Tim, is crazy. Tim, this is crazy. It is. I mean, I know how to, I, I remember the old days defragging Windows machines. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to defrag a Mac. I'm going to have to look into that. How do you defrag a, a Mac and your data? That's crazy. The easiest way to do it is you copy all the data off onto another disk and then you copy it back. Oh, God. So, and that will defrag. <laughs> that will defrag. All right. So 250 terabytes of data. You're just going to go ahead and copy that. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's basically the thing you're working files. You know, if you're working on a project and it starts getting really slow and you've got, you know, 500 gigs, then you just plug in a 500 gig drive and copy everything over and then copy everything back and your speed will be back to where it was. So this is why as much as I love APFS, I think APFS is much more resilient than HFS. We have, we have uh, testing protocols here where we can trash a HFS volume and make it non-mountable, just doing normal things that a user might you know, inadvertently do. Um, we can make it non-manageable in like three or four minutes. And we can do those same steps with APFS and the volume is still manageable. Hmm. So, um, so APFS has some huge, huge advantages. It just has this one thing. If you're using SSDs, APFS is the way to go. It is fabulous. Um, the encryption is great. The performance is good. Um, you know, it's for streaming um, small numbers of files simultaneously, it has the same performance as HFS. There's no speed decrease. Mm-hmm. Um, it handles trim correctly. It's just really great. But on a rotating media disk, the caveat is you have to know that there's a potential for your, for your performance to really, really go down dramatically. And you have to be looking out for it and know how to handle it when it happens. You know, this is a little bit off the subject, but I'm thinking about the fact that, or maybe it's not a fact, maybe I'm wrong, but the spinners, the rotating disks, if you lose data on a rotating disk for whatever reason, you can most of the time recover most of the data. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. uh, There are different ways of doing it. But an SSD, when an SSD fails, my experience with the SSDs is if they fail, they're gone. Goodbye. Yes, yes, uh, that's true. You can't get that data back. Am I right about that? Yeah, as far as I know, the people at Drive Savers would be the real set of people to answer that question. Right. I believe what you're saying is correct. The other thing is that we have not yet figured out how to predict that a uh, SSD is going to fail. Mm-hmm. So we, of all the hard disks, the rotating media disks, roughly 75% of the drives that are going to fail, SoftRate will predict that they're going to fail. Twenty, So one in four, we, we can't predict. But three and four, we predict they're going to fail. We don't have the same visibility into SSDs failing, so we can't mm-hmm. predict those quite as well. Well, that's another reason to be careful. Yes. Well, I was going to say that's another reason to be careful. The quality of the SSD is really important, and we don't know what we're buying. That's It's kind of scary. I mean, yeah, you might save money by buying a cheaper SSD, 
heaven knows where it's made, but I tend to be afraid of that. So I, I stick with, and I, I don't want to sound like a commercial for OWC. And yes, they are our sponsor. And I work with those discs for many, many years. I, it's, this is true. You guys that are listening in, I'm not getting paid to say this. I buy OWC because I trust them. Mm-hmm. And that's actually how I ended up working with them so much. Yeah. You've got a version six coming up. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're adding more support for APFS. There's going to be two levels of functionality, like SoftRaid and SoftRaid Pro. What's the difference between the two? I think what, we're, what we've decided two weeks ago is that we're going to do one version and there you're going to be able to buy a license to unlock the Pro features. So the pro features are going to be the email notification. They're going to be the advanced RAID level. So the the fundamental version will just do RAID 01, the striping and mirroring that I talked about at the very beginning. The other, Mm -hmm. the pro version will do all the the RAID 4, RAID 5, RAID 6, RAID 6 plus. Mm -hmm. And a a level we haven't talked about called RAID 1 plus 0. Mm -hmm. So it'll do all those. It'll do the email notification. It'll also have a a command line interface so that you can type in terminal, type in software commands. Pretty much anything you can do in software from the user interface from the application, you can also do on the command line if you're uh, someone who does scripting or you want to do some sort of uh, monitoring or anything, that can all be done uh, from the command line. So if you're the type of person who's responsible for a large number of Macs and you're used to using the command line, um, and getting remote access to a machine that is very doable with software. What other features of version 6 can you think of you'd like to tell people about now? Uh, well, the, the other thing that's going to happen with software 6, um, we, we, just, we found this company, uh, Mark, my support person, found this company two years ago that had, has a really cool product on um, Windows that allows you to plug a Macintosh formatted disk oh. into a Windows machine and read and write it. And the, the product's called Mac Drive. And um, so it's cool. And the, th- the reason it came up on Mark's radar was they had reverse engineered the software driver so they could take a software volume and plug it in to a Windows machine and read and write it. So uh, I persuaded Larry, the owner of OWC, to purchase this company, and they're now working on software for Windows. So just about the time that software 6 comes out for Mac, software version 1 for Windows comes out. And the really, really cool thing about this, it's a feature that people have been asking for for as long as they've been in with OWC, which is five years. You know, the first year I went to NAB, people said, yeah, you know, I have my, uh, my editor, my ingest person on a Mac, and then my editor's on Windows, and my colorist is on a Mac, and my uh, LTO backup is on, on a Mac. And so if they wanted to be able to take uh, an enclosure with four, eight, six, or eight drives, and just literally carry it down the hall and give it to the next guy in the workflow. Mm-hmm. These projects are so large that setting up a 10G uh, internet, uh, Ethernet network and the SAN solution is, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And for a, a small group, work group, uh, it's really cost prohibitive. So they, that money would be much better spent on cameras and lenses and lighting equipment. Mm-hmm. And if they can just literally hand carry this thing down the hall, that's what they want to do. But they wanted to be able to do it and have it read and write from both platforms. Mm-hmm. So now here it is, uh, you know, several years later, we're actually going to deliver on that whole idea of being able to edit on one machine, on one platform Windows, and then move it onto another platform and do another operation on Mac. So 
it's really going to be completely transparent. The, uh, the Mac Drive team that's now doing this, they're using all our source code. They're using our programming, the Mac uh, driver model, and we're really sharing information. They've even found a couple of bugs in the property driver, ones that I'm embarrassed are were there. But uh, it's great. We have more eyes on the code. We have more eyes on the technology. We have more brains thinking about what we're doing. And we really are dedicated now to providing a cross-platform solution. Well, that's that's really good news. Talk to me about the T2 chip. Um, the T2 chip is, I was always sort of nervous about because it's sort of another level of complexity in the storage architecture. So here's this chip. It sits inside the Mac. It acts as sort of a gatekeeper to the internal storage. It's in charge of reading and writing. Um, there's a there's, I, I sort of tried to figure out what was going on. And the last part of my talk in 2018 at Maxis was what I thought, the last 10 or 15 minutes, what I thought was going on with the T2 chip. A lot of these conferences, the people are incredibly smart. And thank God, they are also incredibly generous. So the week after I gave that talk, uh, the head of research at Oxford University contacted me and said, hey, mate, I think you got this wrong. You know, Apple just uh, published a white paper and they, you might want to look at it. So I spent two or three days digesting this incredibly complex white paper. And I knew I had a talk coming up at Mac Tech Conference in L.A., couple of weeks later. And so the last part of my talk for 2018 for Mac Tech is uh, the correct description of what's actually going on in the T2 chip. I'm pretty sure I got it right. I'm very impressed with their architecture and what they're doing. It really is designed so that if you open up uh, iMac Pro, for instance, and take the storage out of it, you can't take that storage somewhere else and clone it and then stick it back in the original machine. There's, it really is locks that that storage down to that particular computer. And the cryptography is such um, that it's much harder to decrypt things. I'm going to dive a little bit into how encryption works. When you you decrypt something, you enter your password and you generate in the the computer, in the, the, the main memory of the computer, an encryption key. And this key is what allows the computer to decrypt what's on your volume. So you'll, if you read about, you know, some of the malware, hear people talking about such and such malware allows people to, to get at encryption keys. Mm-hmm. You probably heard that. I think the Spectre and Meltdown um, people are saying, yes, it will make the keys vulnerable. What that means is that there is software that allows someone... Uh, a bad actor to go and snoop on the memory in your computer and find these keys. And with those keys and your volume, they then have access to everything on your volume. Mm. The cool thing about the T2 chip is this key never makes it into main memory. It's always only on the, on the T2 chip. So it's not susceptible to snooping by a piece of malware that's sitting on the Mac. And I think that is, you know, again, going back to my statement about being in favor of what Apple's doing to harden the platform, to make it harder for all this malware, this ransomware, all these other bad pieces of software to access our our data or to lock us so that we have to pay them, you know, a ransom to get back our data that we have on our desktop. Anything Apple's doing to make this harder to do, to make it to, to harden the platform, I'm totally in favor of it. And the T2 chip is one of those things. How reliable is the T2 chip going to be? I know there was some talk about it being potentially 
uh, vulnerable or becoming inoperable at one point, and then your data becomes inaccessible. Is that do you see that as a potential problem, or have they solved that? I am not aware of that. So anything I say is going to be speculation. Mm, okay. Uh, from a design perspective, it is it does introduce a single point of failure. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's but the whole you know that if you look inside the iMac Pro, it has two. Uh, SSD modules in it, mm-hmm. and your data gets spread across those modules. So if either one of those modules fails, you're going to lose all your data. So it's the same as a Stripe. It's not ideal. Um, again, you want to back up your data. Mm-hmm. What I often do is I have uh, my operating system on one volume. In fact, what I always do now, I have my operating system on one volume, and then on a separate volume, I have all my data files. This gives me the advantage of if something happens to my system file, I can reinstall my system and still have all my data there. Hmm. Apple with Catalina is sort of doing the same thing in that they now have a write-protected mm-hmm. system volume and a, and a regular uh, data volume, and they sort of merge them magically together so you see only one volume. It's actually two volumes behind the, the scenes. The problem with their, their uh, implementation is you don't really have a clear separation, which you can look at and you can say, I just want to um, update this one volume. We're going to leave everything else here. So what I do now, even on my laptops, is I create two APFS volumes. One's my startup volume. The other is all my data files, my work files, everything, mm-hmm. my projects, my, the graphic artists, everything is there. And what I can do then is, like, I'm, I'm in the process of moving Catalina, so I just create a new APFS volume, I install Catalina on it, mm. then I boot up into Catalina, and I see whether I can actually do all the things I have to do day-to-day on my separate data volume. Mm-hmm. That's really smart. That's really smart. So have I forgotten to ask you anything about software because there's something else I want to ask you about? That has nothing to do with software. <laughs> I, I think that's the cool thing, the one thing I want to say about software, and this is where we really differ from, certainly from the Apple-sized organizations, but even from many of the medium-sized organizations, I sit next to the person who does support. And every morning at 10 o'clock, he and I, we actually have a team meeting, and he brings up anything that's support-related that he can't figure out that he thinks is anomalous, that's not working right. We often spend an hour every day Hmm. going over these things. And I'm convinced that this is the reason that we have such a high quality piece of software Mm -hmm. and why we're so responsive to customers' needs. Mm -hmm. And I'm committed to keeping that whole structure going, going forward into the future. That's awesome. Well, you're a very caring person, Tim. You really are. You have a big heart, which also brings Thank me you. to the next. I'm excited. We we have a few minutes left, and I do want to ask you about uh, people may not know that you make awesome chocolate and you make awesome pizza. Let's talk about food. <laughs> And let's talk about your pizzas and how you, I really want to, but you know, the holidays are coming and we're people too, and we have to eat and we have to make merry. So tell me about your pizza. Yes. I started the whole trip down pizza, the pizza road, the same way I start any new software project, which is I, I start by doing a lot of research. So I had tried making pizza in my, in my oven. I had a pizza stone. And the results were, uh, you know, just not there. They were not that really thin, crisp crust with a sort of ethereal dough inside and the really thin layer of toppings, you know, and the slightly browned crust edge. It just was like, it was more like a, a cooked piece of toast with stuff on, on top. <laughs> I realized that, that the pizzas I really liked came from wood-fired pizza ovens. 
And I started researching wood fired pizza ovens and I had all these fears like, oh, I won't be able to start the fire. Um, I'm going to put a pizza in and it's going to roll over and just be mush. Um, I'm not going to get the flavor I want. And so I started, uh, you know, what everyone does, which is seeing videos online. And videos online are great, but it's sort of like online dating. You don't really know what's going to happen. You don't really know what's there until you see it in front of you. And I found a wood, mm-hmm. uh, wood oven vendor who was willing to let me come up with my three daughters uh, one Saturday afternoon while she was teaching a cooking class and just watch her start a fire and watch her make a pizza. And I could, she let me feel what the pizza dough was mm. like and I you know, watched it and it sort of was, became this magical thing. And so from that point on, I started down this path. I designed a pizza oven in the backyard. Um, I found the same vendor imports these pizza ovens. Her name is Andrea Mugni-Ini. And um, so she's been importing pizza ovens, I think, since the 80s. She finds these, she found these pizza ovens that have been made in uh, Italy since the 40s. And it's, such a, it's a great design. And she gave me the uh, construction plans to build my pizza oven. And I think I probably made, I've had the pizza oven four and a half years. I think I've made more than 500 pizzas in that amount of time. And it's, it's now just a, it's now just a habit for us. You know, uh, we did it yesterday. I, you know, Sunday morning, we invite a whole bunch of friends over for Sunday afternoon. I start prepping ingredients. I start making the dough Friday afternoon. So it's ready for Sunday. And, you know, the week I spend, you know, you wake up in the morning and the first thought through my head is, Oh my, not, Oh my God, this is the call. I have to be on it. It's like, Oh, let's see. Figs are in season. I wonder if I could do a pizza with figs. So it's sort of it's sort of my focus for the week. You know, I came up with one a couple months ago, which is anchovies and fresh thin slices of fresh lemon Ooh. on a tomato base with a a little tiny bit of mozzarella, and it is just. It, the, the saltiness and the sourness just really work together. So every once in a while, I come across a combination like that that I just totally love, and I just. It just becomes, you know, and you spend literally six hours prepping ingredients, roasting the vegetables that you're going to put on the pizza, getting the oven hot enough. And then, you know, it takes two minutes to cook and probably another two minutes to eat. It's really funny, but it's just, it gets me out of my head. And I love the warmth and I love having people around that sharing an afternoon talking about children or, or uh, you know, politics or arts or, or anything to do, anything but computers. It's really wonderful. We're foodies. I mean, we, we need food to live, but food is so they enjoyable. Are. Can you share, can you put somewhere your pizza dough recipe? Is it anywhere where we can see it? Uh, yeah, sure. Because I'd love to link. The, the book that started me on the process, I actually started on bread before I started mm-hmm. on pizza. And I made bread, uh, you know, I lived in a group house in college and again in graduate school in Boston. And in both places, I made bread three times a week. I made, you know, three loaves of bread three times a week. So I was making nine loaves of bread a week. And it was the old, you know, knead it, it goes into a rectangular loaf pan. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of work, you know, it just was just, and I knew when I started making bread again, I did not want to do that. And then there was this sort of, um, article in the New York Times that popularized the no-needs bread re- recipe. It's a very wet dough, and it goes into a cast iron Dutch oven at 500 degrees. And the cast iron Dutch oven becomes like a steaming environment, so you get this wonderful crust. And I was a little skeptical, and then I, I ran into a man named Ken Forkish, who I believe was also a software engineer who decided to go off and, and learn how to do bread. 
And he traveled the world for a couple of years and then started a bakery in Portland, Oregon. And he has a great cookbook called Flour, Water, uh, Salt, and Yeast. And he describes um, many things, including making pizza. And I make a pizza dough sort of following his recipe. I don't, he has a very high amount of water. I use slightly less water. I use the sourdough and he uses regular yeast. Mm. But aside from that, it's pretty much his recipe. And um, that book is really wonderful because it really goes into the, the look and feel of doughs in different stages. And he has a playfulness with it that is much less regimented than most recipes are. So you're in San Francisco. What part of the world is he in? Because that, that makes a difference in how much water you use too, right? Um, he's in Portland, Oregon. I, I think what makes a bigger difference is the, the actual brand of flour. Oh, okay. Different brands of flour take up different amounts of water. Mm. So I noticed that, for instance, the King Arthur flour, which I don't use, takes up a very different amount of water than the stuff I get from Whole Foods. I'm now using flour from um, another high-tech entrepreneur who decided he wanted to go off and learn how to milk flour. And my understanding is he, he bought a flour mill in Utah, of all places, and has since uh, created a retail establishment in Petaluma, which is about hours north of San Francisco. And I get my flour in 50-pound bags from him or from this company. It's called Central Milling. And uh, I love the results from their flour. And so I just I use their flour now for bread. I use it for um, baking like cookies and cakes. And I also use it for pizza. Now that I'm totally famished because it's lunchtime and I haven't even had breakfast yet. <laughs> Okay, I'm making we're gonna pizza have to... this weekend, Karina. Oh. Serena, come up. I'm making pizza this weekend. I would love to have you. I'll, fl- I'll fly up there to have pizza. Before we go, take a minute, though, and let us leave with a very romantic story of how you met your wife. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, So I had been married for 13 years. And my ex-wife decided that she wanted to change. And I was, I had always imagined that I would be one of those people walking down the street that we would be in our 70s or 80s holding hands and helping each other. And she, her view was different. So I was sort of pretty distraught, pretty destroyed by this. And after six weeks of feeling like, you know, life was, not, was really hard and, and dark, I decided that um, I would do something for other people to make myself feel better. And I decided to make truffles for everyone I knew. And I've been making truffles at this point for about 10 years. I buy, you know, 20 kilograms of chocolate. That's 45 pounds of chocolate a year in large blocks. The blocks are about the size of a, the top of a, of a styrofoam freezer chest. They're pretty substantial, inch and a half thick, probably 12 by mm. 20 inches. Um, and so I, what I usually do when I buy chocolate is I go and I canvas all my friends and say, hey, I'm buying chocolate. Do you want any? And I was living in Sebastopol at the time. I had three people in the Bay Area who wanted chocolate. And I was driving around dropping off chocolate. So I had some some person in Oakland, some person in San Francisco. The last person was in Mill Valley just across the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was dropping off my chocolate with them. And um, they were sitting there talking about, you know, uh, how the divorce was going to happen, uh, what was going to happen with the child custody, all this stuff. And I just, uh, you know, started talking and, and, uh, and they said, they said, well, are you ready to start dating yet? And I said, no, I'm not ready to start dating, but when I am, mm-hmm. these are the qualities I'm looking for. And I listed like three or four 
like I sort of thought about it and I thought, this is what's really important to me. It has to be someone who's a really good role model for my daughter. So it has to be someone who's professional, but also has the human side. It has to be someone who, you know, reads a lot. It has to be someone who takes education as a high priority, someone who's in the food and all these things. And the woman, you know, I had a glass of wine and, I, and she had this funny smirk on her face. And I thought <laughs> to myself, she's thinking this poor guy, he is just really a lost case. And her husband looked at her and said, Renee, right? And I thought, oh my God, they're going to set me up on a date. And sure enough, they, you know, three, three, three or four days later, Rick calls me up and says, you know, there's someone we really want you to meet. Um, we think you'd be a really good match, you know. So uh, I called her, I called Renee and, um, and I told her, you know, what, that I was going to make chocolate and truffles. And she said, so what do I, I didn't know this at the time that she's as much of a chocolate nut as I am. She said, well, what do you, ha what do I have to do to get some of these chocolates? And I said, you have to meet me and go on a hike with me. And that was our first date. Oh, that's really sweet. That's really sweet. So to everyone listening, enjoy the holidays. Enjoy the food in your life. Eat chocolate. And uh, and then you can worry about soft rate and computers and data, but uh, people, you know, it's about people, it's about family, it's about people like Tim Standing, who's a dear friend, I'm fortunate to know. Uh, this is wonderful. I, I thank you so much for spending time. We've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. You've given me some food for thought on, on all levels, Tim. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. And thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I've been speaking with Tim Standing. He's the VP of Software Development at Otherworld Computing and the creator of SoftRaid for Mac OS X and somebody that has been a friend for a long time. Remember what I tell you guys, get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today. And when you get a minute, go to MacSales.com and help our sponsor realize how much we really appreciate them. Thank you so much. Have a great day.